Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. So this weekend, we're celebrating both the 12th Sunday in Ordinary Time, and we're celebrating the Nativity of St. John the Baptist, a solemn feast. The way the liturgical year works as a calendar is the Annunciation of Mary is March 25. Today is the, uh, the Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist, a solemn feast. And then it's basically six months um, before December 25, which is the birth of our, of our Lord. And so it not only keeps us in the story of Scripture through the lived experience of the liturgy in the church, but it also lines up with cosmological time because the uh, feast of the, uh, the nativity of St. John the Baptist lines up with the summer solstice. And it's so it's what uh, St. John says about himself uh, and Jesus. He says, I must decrease and he must increase because John the Baptist is going to be martyred by Herod, uh, which is offends the people because John is very popular. They talk about him in all four Gospels. He's mentioned by the first century Jewish historian Josephus. In fact, Josephus says that the people believe that Herod lost a great battle because he had beheaded uh, John the Baptist and offended God. Um, but the center of the, of the uh, Gospels about the, the nativity of John the Baptist centers around his name and the name that's given him. And so the name John, it's a great name. Um, and it means Yahweh gives grace. The, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, that's a transliteration of the, of the Hebrew text, of, of the Hebrew uh, word, is it's a tetragrammaton because it's just four initials. There are no vowels in it, so nobody really knows how it was ever pronounced. When I say Yahweh, this is what I was taught in the seminary. But it's Yohanan is John's name, and so Yahweh gives grace. And what's the grace? It's the grace of repentance, because this is what he is being called to do to foreshadow um, the Savior. So think about what's in a name. Yohanan means Yahweh gives grace. Jesus, the Hebrew name is Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. And so in the messages of the angels to Mary and Zechariah, it's the forerunner, God, Yahweh gives grace, and it's also the arrival of salvation. Um, God saves, Yahweh saves. And so John goes into the desert, perhaps he is with the Essenes, that's what some modern scop uh, 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 scholars think about it. But if you remember when he comes preaching in the desert, calling people to baptism, this ritual about a cleansing from sin. Um, how, he's asked, how does he describe himself? Do you remember what John says in the Gospels? I am a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And it goes on from there. It's a reference back to Isaiah. And so he's a voice crying in the wilderness. That is God's grace. And what is he, what is he crying out? Well, because he, he talks about repentance from sin. He calls people vipers. He, he says, make straight the way of the Lord. Do you remember how John, uh, as in the Gospel of John, how that starts out? 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing came into being except through Him, through the Word. And so the Greek word is logos, um, because the voice crying in the wilderness is crying out a word, God saves, the name Yeshua, and it's the holy name, the name through which we're saved. I think what's really interesting is about this meditation that the evangelists call us to about, about God's word and God's salvation. And so Mary listens to the angel, Zechariah doubts the angel, but even the one who listens and the one who doubts comes to faith and they express God's saving activity through the names that are given to their sons. And so do you remember how it is that Zechariah communicates the name that the angel gave him to give to his son, John, who would become the Baptist? Uh, he writes it out, um, what the angel said, and shows it to everybody because his voice couldn't uh, proclaim the word uh, in the way that he was called to proclaim. And so how it is in the, in the church, in the New Testament, you go from the preaching of John the Baptist, which is in all four of the Gospels, and the name the, that he proclaims, the person he proclaims is the Lamb of God, Yeshua, Jesus. And how does that come to us? It comes to us through the words of the New Testament. And so what is it that John the Baptist calls people to do? If you remember one thing about John the Baptist, he calls us to repentance of sin. And the readings on the 12th Sunday of Ordinary Time are all about sin. You know, before you can understand how Jesus saves you, how listening to the preaching of John the Baptist calls you uh, to hear what God has to say to you, is it because, because first, as St. Paul says, we become convicted of sin we recognize there's something inside of us that we cannot fix. And then we listen, then we respond. And in responding and calling out the name of Jesus, confessing him on our lips, believing in our hearts, as in the, as in the letter to the Romans, um, salvation comes to us. So let's now turn to the scripture readings for the 12th Sunday of Ordinary Time, which are all about the reality of sin in our life, think about and meditate on um, our own failures in life, but also the great hope that the preaching of John the Baptist gives us about the one who has come to save. So let's work our way uh, through the readings for the 12th Sunday, understanding that sin is this corruption in the human heart, and it affects how we think, what we say, and what we do. Um, you know, the, the Latin word for stain is macula, and it's how the early church preached about sin. Imagine a beautiful fruit that is spoiling. There's a stain on it. It's about a corruption that makes it less than what it's supposed to be. That is a great image for sin, the Latin word macula. And if you have a good ear for words, you might think of how macula comes into the English language as in immaculate, as in uh, immaculate Mary, or the immaculate conception, conceived without the stain of sin. And what's the stain? Well, it's the stain that corrupts the human heart. How do we experience it? And that's the readings for the 12th Sunday of Ordinary Time. So the first reading is from the prophet Jeremiah. You know, Jesus said, 
that although the, the Gospels all talk about Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, uh, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets, but the least born into the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Why? Because we're remade in the image and likeness of God through grace. But what is it that keeps, I think, human beings away from God? I think it's because they don't trust God. They think God's going to cheat them. And so at the root of human sin, and the unwillingness to come even to confession or to church uh, to hear the gospel and be healed, um, Jeremiah talks about it. And it's, it's the power of sin in his life. So this is for the first reading from Jeremiah chapter 20. And Jeremiah said, I hear the whisperings of many, terror on every side. Denounce, let us denounce him. All those who are my friends are on the watch for any misstep of mine. Perhaps he'll be trapped, then we can prevail and take our vengeance on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty champion. My persecutors will stumble, they will not triumph. In their failure, they will be put to utter shame, to lasting, unforgettable confusion. And so, Jeremiah recognizes his fear. And the truth is, is there is something to fear, right? Now, Jesus says, fear the one that can send you to Gehenna, um, the, the forces that drag you down. But the gospel is going to tell us the cure to fear. And, the, and it's the flip side, uh, what it is, the balm that God applies to our heart. Uh, and it's in uh, the first letter of John, chapter 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so Jeremiah's fear is what he's going to be denounced. Maybe our fear is we're going to be rejected or people won't understand us or ultimately that when we die we'll be forgotten. Perfect love is to trust that in good times or bad, up and down, in life and in death, the same God is there that casts out fear. The responsorial psalm uh, is really describing the love of God in our lives. And so it's going to be Psalm, uh, which Psalm is this? Psalm 69, and here's how it goes. Lord, in your great love, answer me. For your sake I bear insult, and shame covers my face. I become an outcast to my brothers, a stranger to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who blaspheme you fall upon me. I pray to you, O Lord, for the time of your favor, O God. In your great kindness, answer me with your constant help. Answer me, O Lord, for bounteous is your kindness. In your great mercy, turn toward me. See you lowly ones and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the poor, and his own who are in bonds he spurns not. Let the heavens and the earth praise him, the seas and whatever moves in them. Do you remember I was telling you about the Tetragrammaton, the four letters that, that we read and we think of as Yahweh, though no one really knows how this mysterious name was, was made? You know, the reason that Jewish people, a pious Jewish people, never say Yahweh, and why if you read through the New Testament or even our Greek, our English version of the Old Testament, I think the old version of the of the New Jerusalem Bible is the only one that preserves the name Yahweh in it. It's because the Jewish people believed that when they had sinned against God, he had abandoned him, them. And so when they came back from Babylon in the sixth century, 
what the rabbinic uh, what the rabbinic project was coming all the way through Jesus's time was to build a fence around Torah, and so that you couldn't offend God. So that's what Jesus complains about when he complains about the Pharisees, uh, that they have all these human traditions that they pile on the law and how they wash pots and kettles and all of these things, which really aren't required uh, by the by the law as Jesus understands it. But why did they do it? So you don't even get close to violating the law because God's wrath will be upon you. Some Christians think about that. They always think of God as getting ready to whack them. But the reason the Jewish people later came to refer to Yahweh as El or Adonai or Hashem, the Holy One, is because they won't say his name. Um, it seems like before the Babylonian conquest, the uh, Old Testament freely spoke um, uh, the name of Yahweh, although I, this may not be exactly how it's pronounced. I've said that before. But you can't understand the names of Yeshua or Yohanan unless you understand where they come from. Yeh, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, Yohanan, uh, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh's grace. Um, and so uh, the understanding of how God wants to come to us, why I think in the Old Testament, uh, God is referred to as Father maybe like five times. Uh, and it's the most common way Jesus talks about God because he's trying to overcome this internal fear that we have of God that somehow he will not receive us with love, but it's the corruption of sin. And so when St. Paul talks about it in his letter to Romans, he says, brothers and sisters, through one man sin entered the world and through sin death, and thus death came to all men inasmuch as all sin. For up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin, after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. That's Yeshua, a God who saves us. And so think about death and fear of death. Uh, there is uh, the fear that we have uh, when we're dying, and people do for obvious reasons. Fear what the, what the unknown, what will really happen to me in death. But the bottom line of death is the death of relationship with God. That is, you encounter your death that comes from mortality. Uh, what if it is set up by your belief that God won't be there for you? You see, if you truly believe that God loves you, you're still gonna be afraid. It's a very human thing. But it's not a fear that lacks love. And so in the gospel, which is the gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to the 12, fear no one. You know, don't be afraid, he says, it is his resurrection. Fear is the enemy, fear is the product of sin. Um, how do we experience sin? Um, I read this one, uh, spiritual, uh, I forget who it was actually, but he was talking about the experience of evil. He says, you experience evil when you refuse to fall into temptation. You experience evil when you don't give in to temptation and fall into sin. And you feel the emptiness of that. It's what people try to avoid, that they have to sin in order to feel full. Because that emptiness that you fear, that you try to gratify through all, say, the sensual sins or uh, the spiritual sins of anger and envy or the fear of being uh, seen as we really are in our humility, the uh, pride, 
It's all running about fear. If I don't, if I'm not a glutton, if I don't uh, have that third whatever I'm drinking, um, that what's going to be left is just emptiness. That's the experience of evil. It's why we fall into sin. So Jesus says, fear no one. Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And that's at the heart of spirituality. And so think about this. Connect the understanding of sin and confession with the understanding of the spiritual life. And so what's sin? Um, sin is the stain. How do we fall into st sin? Well, the church says basically three ways. The first is ignorance. No one's ever told you what sin is. There's vincible and invincible ignorance. Vincible ignorance is people that are open to the instruction of the church uh, to learn about virtue and understand how virtue opens us up to God. Um, and so they can try that to follow Jesus uh, in uh, mercy and justice and prudence uh, in temperance and the courage it takes to get up every day and walk the Christian life. Invincible ignorance is you think you know it all, nobody can tell you anything. Uh, really, you're just below water. It's when if you can't accept the reality that God became man and to instruct you, uh, amongst other things, about what it is that God expects of us. If God himself can't tell you, wow, well, what hope do you have that you're going to figure it out on your own? Um, that simply doesn't happen. The second way you sin is really how most of us fall into sin. We know what the truth is. We know what we're supposed to do, uh, but we're weak. And so you fall into sin, you recognize it, say, oh, gosh, and you go to confession. You think, I'm not going to do that again. And then you do it again, right? And so why prayer, fasting, almsgiving, other the aids that the Christian tradition and Jesus from his own lips gives to us as we try to take on sin in our lives. Maybe you avoid meat on Fridays, 52 weeks a year, not just Lent. Uh, you pray every day. You, re you remember your obligations to those uh, who, who go without. Uh, all of these things are about prayer, connection with God, fasting, control of ourselves and our appetites that are the entry, the portal for all sin, and then almsgiving, recognizing our duty to the ones that God loves, the least amongst us. Uh, and then, of course, there's the uh, awful end of the pool, maliciousness. I think lots of people think that uh, their sins are malicious, but maliciousness is uh, intentional, voluntary knowing. You just don't care what God thinks. It's indifference in response to God's love. And mostly, I think, people aren't indifferent to God's love. Mostly Catholics aren't. Uh, even if they're angry when they do something and they think that's malice, or uh, they uh, commit a grave sin, especially a sin involving life and human sexuality, this seems to be at the heart of how a lot of Catholics think about sin. But, you know, the problem of sexuality is, is uh, unchastity has us more than we have unchastity. I think people want relationship. They want love. They want to be able to give themselves in love um, but uh, the problem that we have is um, fear. And so how do you deal with fear and lust? Uh, fear, it just shortchanges the whole process. You get the whole thing upside down. Instead of allowing relationships with God and with others, especially 
uh, say a spouse or someone you're dating in preparation for marriage or you're preparing maybe someday to meet a person you'll spend your life with, um, that uh, you have to learn self-control in order that you can meet and know somebody and in knowing them, love them. And then the married life can go from there. It really doesn't work the other way around. People always think of that as maliciousness, but I, I think that's more characteristic of human weakness. And so how is it that in our spiritual life we respond to that? The spiritual life, remember, the three stages of spiritual life, the purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive way. So the purgative way, how do you get garbage out of your life? How do you overcome sin's grasp on you, your fear that somehow if you just don't eat the forbidden fruit that um, you're missing out on something uh, because you, you experience loneliness, so you experience uh, arousal and all of these things without immediately satisfying what your appetites are. The purgative way is just um, convincing yourself that no, the way that we go to God is this way that we have to go through that emptiness to come to God. And when we go through the emptiness that refusing temptation leaves us with, then we learn, we're open to actually learning something about God, the, lumin, the illuminative way. An understanding of God and grace in our life, the way he helps us, how he's present in our life, this is huge. And then once we've, uh, we've kind of experienced that, we feel God's presence in our life. Uh, and it grows over time. It's not completely linear. I always think it's like those scrubbing bubbles. The purgative, the illuminative, the unitive way, we keep going through those stages throughout our, all of our life. You know, I'd like to leave uh, this uh, episode of Oral Valley Catholic with which, what, what I think is a great and poetic meditation on the power of sin and images of sin uh, in human life. Uh, and it's from the great uh, poet T.S. Eliot, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So let's close with, I think, uh, a poem that I really love. I think it has a lot to say about um, repentance of sin, hearing the voice of John the Baptist, even today, long after his beheading by, uh, by Herod, uh, that we might be open uh, to this uh, movement of our souls to God. I love to read poetry. I encourage others to read good poems. I think there's a lot probably not worth reading, just like everything else. But the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, written by T.S. Eliot, the 1948 winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, is very much about this theme of sin and failure in life. Uh, it's really what's behind the story of it. And I, I'm not sure, but I think it even predates his... Uh, conversion to Christianity, because the poem was written on the eve of the First World War in 1915. Uh, T.S. Eliot is just one of those uh, worth reading, and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock is easy to read, and once I tell you a little bit about it, maybe you'd look it up and read it with some, um, some profit to yourself. So he is this intellectual. He was born in St. Louis, but became a British citizen. And in the poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, he starts out with a quote from Dante's Inferno. He loved Dante. And it's the story of a soul who had been a, a military commander. And because of all the people he killed, he decided to become a Franciscan friar. And then 
when he was a Franciscan friar, the Pope, who was an awful Pope, Boniface VIII came to him, and this is historic, uh, encouraged him to help him go to this uh, city he was trying to conquer the Pope. And uh, he was supposed to talk him into laying down their arms and the, and the Pope would be kind to them. And so he went and did that knowing that instead the Pope was gonna kill everybody, which he did. This is why, this is why the Reformation happens, is corruption and abuse of authority in the church. And um, this soul that uh, Dante encounters in one of the lower regions of hell, of hell because he is a betrayer, um, recognizes that what he has done has just separated him from humanity. So you can actually take that little bit from the beginning and um, have it translated online that's easy enough, um, or you just go to Canto 27 of the Inferno and read it yourself. Um, but it's about betrayal and how betrayal isolates you. It's at the heart of sin. So here's how the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock begins. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights and one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. And in the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let's fall upon its back, the suit that falls from chimneys. Slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. It goes on further from there. But you're sitting there listening, what the heck is that about? So let me give you a few little things. So imagine taking um, the world and spreading it on a table and dissecting it like uh, it's really under your control and you can understand everything. At one level, what T.S. Eliot's uh, criticizing is our idea of the empirical, that if we just use enough science, if we just use our reason, we have everything figured out, and then we can just rationalize our way to everything. And then remember he talks about, let's go through half, certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights and one-night cheap hotels, how it is that everything just becomes old, how beauty creation is, and even human sexuality is just in cheap hotels and cheap restaurants. And then you have to go and make your visit. One of my favorite lines in this poem, if you take the time to think about it, is this line. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. These are the women that he's having these affairs with, and they're all sophisticated, and they're talking about the great artist Michelangelo how to read poetry. When you come across a reference, you stop and you think, what does the reference mean? Well, you go and read a Wikipedia article about Michelangelo, probably the greatest of Catholic artists. What is he most famous for? He's most famous for uh, painting the Sistine Chapel. What did he paint on the Sistine Chapel? He, created the crea he painted the creation of man, God's finger, which everybody has seen reaching out to touch this magnificent Adam who looks like he should be playing fullback uh, on a professional football team. And the fingers don't quite touch, but there's like this electricity between them. 
because the divine and the human never quite completely connect. And then you follow the rest of the paintings through the Sistine Chapel, and it goes to the temptation of Eve, the fall of Adam, and then how both were expelled out of the Garden of Eden. And if you were to go and look at those paintings, you go from this magnificent image of, uh, of Adam, this magnificent image of Eve, to after sin, this stain on them. There's corruption. It's right on their faces. And they're just this dis diminished creature that God had intended. And so the women come in and out of these cheap hotel rooms or these cheap restaurants. Talk about Michelangelo because it sounds sophisticated. But they look at uh, his art and don't even understand it. Why? Well, that's the part of this poem that says, and the yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, the sickly thing that gathers around, this sickly thing that takes the life out of, uh, out of their own life. Because he uses that uh, line a couple times. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo, as if they exist in this world of sin, surrounded by this yellow, sickening fog, and they're just unaware of it. And they just sink deeper and deeper into it. And so in the poem, he talks about getting old. Women don't look at him anymore. He's going bald. Should he comb his hair forward? They notice how skinny his legs have gotten, his pot belly. Even though he still dresses well, they comment on his thin arms. Because even at the end, his lovers desert him. Because there's no love in any of it. His complaint about himself, and it's the most famous line that maybe comes out of the the poem, and it goes like this. For I have known them all already, known them all, he means in the biblical sense, have known the evenings, mornings, and afternoons. I've measured out my life with copies, coffee spoons. I know the voice is dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a further room. So how could, how should I presume? So there is a distant music, but he has no part in it. Why? Because he's so cheap he takes his whole life, the great and glorious gift of life, and instead of generously giving, it's a little scoop at a time as he barters his way through life. And so at the end, the poem concludes, and I hope you read it, I grow old, I grow old, and shall wear the bottom of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I've heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me, I've seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows, the water white and black, we've lingered in the chambers of the sea, by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, to human voices wake us, and we all drown. Back into the waters of chaos. Sin, it doesn't have to be that way. We can now recognize what it is that afflicts us, and understand that God's grace, Yohanan, has, has told us this, so that we might listen to Yeshua, God saves, and find our salvation. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic, holding down the northern flank of Oral Valley and a few neighborhoods in Marana, and hope to hear, uh, be able to speak with you again next week. <laughs>